My name is Stephen Halavik, and I'm here with Professor John Eastman. Can we talk a little bit about your role with the CU Benson Center? Sure. I'm the 2020-2021 visiting uh, scholar in conservative thought and policy at the Benson Center for Western the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado Boulder. My duties include teaching a couple classes, uh, engaging the community, both here in Boulder and around the state of Colorado and also organizing a significant lecture series, uh, which uh, we have done. And my wife is also a a distinguished visiting scholar at the Benson Center. So we've been doing a a tag team one-two punch on the the year. And this isn't your first time at Boulder, is it? First time teaching at Boulder. I've spoken several times at the law school. I've testified there was a civil rights commission hearing that was uh, hosted by the law school a couple of years ago that I testified to. Were you a CWA participant, by the way? Yes, I was. I'm sorry. Yes, I 20, 2019, I was one of the uh, featured speakers at the Conference on World Affairs. Cool. So, so CU was not a new place to you when you came around, but... No, it wasn't. In fact, our son had applied to the engineering program here when when he was looking at undergraduate school. So we'd visited then as well. Yeah. And to go a little bit more on your um, professional experience, I, I heard that you've done a bit with the Supreme Court. I clerked for Clarence Thomas at the Supreme Court. I also uh, founded in 1999 a public interest law firm called the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, which is affiliated with the Claremont Institute. And uh, in that capacity, I've done uh, nearly 200 cases Uh, or participated in nearly 200 cases of constitutional significance for the Supreme Court, including uh, about 17 party representations before the court. Very cool. And the court, you're you're referring to the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court of the United States, yes. Yeah, and there's there's a pretty high barrier to entry there, isn't there? For clerking at the court? Clerking or, you know, giving any comment or anything of that nature. Well, sure. So the court takes uh, their nine justices and they each get four clerks. So there are 36 clerks up there every year, uh, usually fairly recent law school grads who graduated at the top of their classes from some of the nation's top law schools. Um, and uh, so that's that's pretty, pretty uh, steep uh, reverse funnel filter uh, to get up there but also getting cases to be heard by the Supreme Court. There are about 8,000 requests every year or what they call petitions for writs of certiorari. And the court grants less than 80 of them or less than 1%. Uh, So getting a case up there to be argued uh, and decided by the Supreme Court is, uh, is is quite an uphill battle. Excellent. With that, you're, you're a constitutional expert, correct? Yes. Okay, you wrote an op-ed back in when? When was the op-ed? August, in mid-August. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, do you mind just telling me a little bit about the topic and what caused you to write it? Sure. So I've been working uh, ever since um, one of the uh, war on terror unlawful combatants, a guy named Yasser Isam Hamdi, was captured uh, uh, under arms in Afghanistan and sent to Guantanamo Bay. And they discovered that he'd been born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, while his dad was on a two-week, a two-year work visa. And uh, so they immediately transferred him to Norfolk, Virginia, and started treating him as a citizen rather than an, a non-citizen unlawful combatant. 
And I took issue with that because I think that's a misinterpretation of our 14th Amendment citizenship clause, um, which says all persons born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens. Two requirements. And so the big question is, what does subject to jurisdiction mean? And at the time the 14th Amendment was drafted, it had two different meanings. Um, it meant it could mean what they called partial or territorial jurisdiction, uh, or it could mean more complete or allegiance owing jurisdiction. Uh, and so the question was, which of those two did they mean? And they, let me define the differences. Partial or territorial jurisdiction means whenever you're within our borders, you're subject to our laws, unless you're a foreign diplomat with immunity. Um, so if a British tourist is over here visiting uh, and he rents a car, he has to drive on the right side of the road, not on the left side of the road, as, as the law in, in England requires. Uh, but he's not subject to our more complete jurisdiction that we can draft him into our army or prosecute him for treason if he takes up arms against us. Um, he doesn't owe any allegiance to us, and so he wouldn't be breaking any oath of allegiance. That distinction was brought front and center in the debates over the 14th Amendment, which gave us the citizenship clause. And it was in the context of Native Americans. And, and the authors of the clause were asked point blank, are, you know, will this, will this give citizenship to the Indians? And the author said no, because they're only subject to the partial jurisdiction, not subject to the complete jurisdiction that this amendment requires. And so that means that people who are born on U.S. soil to American citizens, or after a Supreme Court decision uh, 120 years ago, uh, to lawful permanent residents or those who have become permanently domiciled in this country with our permission, then their children are citizens automatically. But people who are just temporarily visiting, uh, whether legally, like on a student visa or a, a temporary work visa, or illegally without any uh, legal authorization to be here at all, they are subject to our territorial jurisdiction while they're here, of course, like everybody else is, but they're not subject to this more complete jurisdiction. So I've been writing about this. Uh, former Attorney General Ed Meese and I filed a brief in the Supreme Court uh, raising the issue back in the Yasser Isam Hamdi case. Uh, I've been writing and publishing about it and testifying before Congress about it for nearly 20 years. And then when Joe Biden named Kamala Harris as his vice presidential running mate, it appeared to me that she did not meet the requirement of being a citizen at the time of her birth, which is what is required uh, in order to run for president or vice president. You have to be a natural born citizen, which means a citizen at the time of birth, not subsequently naturalized. Uh, because her parents were here on student visas at the time, which means temporarily, not permanently domiciled here. Uh, and they only later became naturalized citizens. But of course, uh, what happened after her birth doesn't affect whether she was a citizen from the time of birth. So I raised the questions, were they, had they been naturalized or acquired green card status, nat lawful permanent resident status before her birth, in which case she would be eligible, or did they only uh, acquire that status after her birth, in which case, uh, under my understanding of the 14th Amendment, she would be ineligible for the office. Was there any actual error in what you wrote? None whatsoever. The, 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 now, I, I will say this. This is, this is an open issue. The Supreme Court has never resolved or never addressed whether the children of temporary visitors are citizens automatically under the 14th Amendment. The closest it's gotten to that was in the 1898 case of Wong Kim Ark, United States versus Wong Kim Ark. But the parents involved there 
were lawful permanent domiciled residents. And the court 28 times makes reference to that fact in its opinion. Prior to writing this, how, how welcome did you feel at CU Boulder? Well, we hadn't arrived yet. This came the week before we arrived. And of course, uh, the, uh, the welcome mats were pulled back rather quickly as a result of this article. It's some, some rather scurrilous things said by people who really had no idea what the, what the uh, legislative history of the amendment was, what the, the deep scholarship that has been done on this issue was. Um, they just accused me of all sorts of nefarious things without knowing what the hell they were talking about. Yeah, and so there was a specific, was it community or faculty reaction to your at CU Boulder? Well, uh, uh, faculty as well as community, but the faculty ones were the most scurrilous. Uh, the, 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 the chairman of the political science department sent a, sent a rather uh, sophomoric but, but scurrilous letter to all of the faculty. Uh, the chancellor of the university said in, in response to calls for my, my uh, visitorship to be revoked that he would not do that. But he, he in his letter, he went on and said, but this is a, 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 a terrible piece of scholarship. And he had no idea what he was talking about. I invited him to set up a public forum so he could actually learn something about what the significant legal issues are. Uh, but he didn't even uh, deign to respond. Uh, the only person on the campus um, publicly. There are several people that sent me notes privately, but the only person on the campus publicly who actually spent the time to look at the scholarship was the acting dean of the School of uh, uh, the, the Liberal Arts School, the School of Arts and Humanities. Um, and uh, he, he sent out a very, you know, look, I mean, Eastman may not be right about this, but I've looked at the scholarship and it's quite possible he is right about it. But what is also very clear is is a very, very serious and open question in constitutional law uh, that he has been addressing for 20 years uh, and has nothing to do with the race of the particular candidate involved here. Um, and he's raised the issue in the context of um, white French accidental citizens, they call themselves, or the current prime minister of Great Britain, Boris Johnson, um, uh, on the Yasser Isam Hamdi case. We're currently involved in a case in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals involving the so-called ISIS bride that raises the same issues. Uh, so I've been raising it rather consistently for nearly 20 years. And he acknowledged that and recognized also that it was a serious bit of scholarship that my work is based on. And, uh, and that um, in a, at a university, this is particularly the position I'm in, which is to bring intellectual diversity to the campus, uh, you would think people would want to engage me on the merits rather than just um, casting ad hominem aspersions. Yeah, and what implications do you think this has for conservative students or those with opposing viewpoints to those of their professors or you know, the community of Boulder? Well, had I backed down, then they would have been um, like turtles going into their shells and never coming out. The fact that I stood up to it and offered to engage anybody that wanted to engage on the subject, uh, I think, gives a measure of solace to such conservatives that maybe they can be in a position to offer counterpoints as well. Unfortunately, nobody's ever taken me up on the offer. My home institution at Chapman University in California um, there was leaked, you know, the kind of back behind the scenes discussions about um, what kind of attack can we make on Eastman. And somebody said, you know, you really don't want to do this. He knows this area better than anybody else on campus. I'm not sure you want to try and engage him on it. But that's a really sad commentary. 
they'll, they'll go ahead and make the accusations that I don't know what I'm talking about while at the same time conceding that I do and that they don't dare broach it with me because they'll be made to look the fools. With that being said, you know, it was like a lot of people, it was almost like a mob mentality where people were just kind of calling you names. So what were some of those? Well, you know, the racist, xenophobe, uh, they, they threw in every name you could. But, you know, look, uh, uh, I was I was a, a fairly high level appointee during the Reagan administration at the Civil Rights Commission. So, you know, that, that was 40 years ago, 30 years ago. I've, I've grown pretty thick skin over these things. The best part of it was um, uh, a, a professor at the London School of Economics said that, you, you know, falsely said, you, you know, you're only raising this issue, making it up because she's, she's black. And I said, that's just nonsense. I've been raising it for 20 years. But he, but he sent me this via an email and copied the dean and the president of my home institution, university. Now, in the United States, public figures such as I, I am uh, have a very high hurdle to, to prevailing on a libel suit. Um, calling somebody racist uh, without evidence is libelous per se, they call it. Um, and if you're a private figure, uh, then you're going to win a libel suit and statutory damages and punitive damages and all sorts of things. But if you're a public figure, which means, you know, anybody that's got a national reputation on the issue and is uh, uh, then, then the, the threshold for winning a libel suit, even though the things that are said are libelous per se, um, is darn near impossible, um, but not true in England. And so I pointed that out to the London School of Economics professor, and he immediately retracted and offered an apology because in England, um, they don't have that high threshold, but they do have as a full defense to libel uh, that they've offered an apology. So he immediately offered the apology. I wish I had not given him that option in a, in a response email. I wish I had filed the libel suit so his apology would have been more public. But what uh, uh, but, but that means is anybody that knew what they were doing knew what they were saying was scurrilous and libelous. And but for the high threshold here in the United States, I would win lots of damages from people. So uh, folks that were subject to those damages immediately backed down, which is an acknowledgement that what they said was not true. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, your, your article is still up on Newsweek, right? Well, and that's another curious thing. News, Newsweek, uh, you know, there was a huge backlash against them even publishing it. And they, and, they, and they put out an editorial defending their decision to publish it because, uh, as I rightly point out, this is an open area in Supreme Court jurisprudence and on an issue that has never been resolved by the Supreme Court. Uh, but then their own staff around the world revolted. And so they did an, another editorial, not separate piece, but now a full paragraph introduction to my article um, saying we hadn't anticipated how his article would be misused by racist sites. Now that's become a standard mantra. But every time somebody has said that to me, I said, point me to those sites that are misusing it so I can join you in criticizing and, and rejecting their misuse of my argument. Not a single person has pointed me to a single site where that has happened. And yet people keep making the argument that it's, you know, that it has been misused by white supremacists. I'd like people to show me where it is so I can join them in, in, in rejecting such misuse in no uncertain terms. But the fact is it wasn't done. Um, you know, and so uh, uh, that was just an excuse so that they didn't have to take me on on the merits of my argument. Yeah. And do you care to comment on like the polarization of America at this point? Um, you know, 
just based on you know your experiences with just trying to write a, an opposing viewpoint to the well you know and it's and it's the reaction from the left uh, uh, when the harvard law professor lawrence tribe called into question senator ted cruz's eligibility for the office of president when he was running as a candidate in the primaries in 2016 um, I don't recall anybody accusing Professor Tribe of being a racist or an anti-Cuban American, anti-Hispanic American uh, bigot. Uh, you know the thing, the sorts of things that I was called. Um, he raised a serious constitutional issue uh, that was unresolved. He acted as though it had been re fully resolved by the court, and Ted was clearly ineligible or ineligible. And then he backed down and said, "No, it's not resolved." Um, my position is this is an open question in the Supreme Court, unresolved. I think the evidence from the uh, 14th Amendment debates um, is pretty persuasive that I'm right about this, but uh, it's it's not a it's not an issue that the Supreme Court has resolved. I sincerely appreciate your time, Professor Eastman. And um, are there any other comments that you want to make on this topic? Sure. I'll just uh, extend the invitation again that I've done in other forums. Uh, if there's anybody on campus that would like to have an open public airing about this issue, we don't need to talk about it in the context of the vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris. We can talk about it in the context of, say, Russian birth tourism in Miami, which raises the same issue. Uh, is somebody born in Miami to a Russian, white Russian mother who visits for a month before giving birth, is that person a citizen under the 14th Amendment? Or we can talk about it in the context of the Chinese birth tourism trade in Los Angeles um, uh, and take it out of the hyper-partisan politics that goes along with an, an intensely con uh, contested presidential election and look at it in the broader context. And if nobody on campus thinks they're... Um, capable of engaging in that debate with me because they don't know the scholarship or the materials as well as I do, um, then I can offer them names of people that, that do know the materials that have taken the position opposite of mine and they can bring them to campus and have a full airing of it that way as well. And I would be happy to engage in that discussion uh, and lighten the citizenry of Colorado, but the students and faculty on campus the administrators. In fact, that's exactly what I was brought here to do in, in this position as visiting scholar in the Benson Center. So take advantage of the opportunity while I'm here and let's have a, a public forum. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Eastman.